fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now enjoy the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Ariel Roldan, pastor of the Cadillac and Lake City Seventh-day Adventist Churches in the Michigan Conference. And now, here's Pastor Ariel. Beside the church, good morning. We're going to continue on this series on marriage. And this morning, we're on our fifth part of it already. Uh, it's one of the longest series that I developed. I used to not always think that marriage was, I'm going to say that important, but I used to love preaching on prophecy, preaching on end time events. And my wife began to talk into my ear when I was at the village church that why don't I prepare a sermon like for marriage? And I thought, ah, that's when I get older. And it didn't take long for me to realize that I needed to prepare messages for marriage because it showed me how little I knew <laughs> about the subject. And I'm thankful that the Lord allowed me to come across material that I've already mentioned, I've referenced. And this morning's message comes largely from a book by Dr. Samuel Bakioki called The Covenant Marriage. I've used it along the series so far, but he talks about a core component called handling conflict, which is one of the major ways that Satan seeks to attack marriages. So I would like to have a word of prayer and we can begin exploring the conflicts and but most importantly, the solutions for the conflicts that we can experience in our marriages. Precious Father, thank you for that hymn. I surrender all. Lord, I surrender self. I surrender pride. I surrender selfishness. I surrender my cherished sins, my idols. Father, I love that song. And it's a, a lifelong journey, Lord, to learn to live it out to its fullness. Through the power of your Spirit, Father, we pray that that melody would linger in our thoughts as we hear about this. In regards to conflict in our marriage, we pray, Father, that your Spirit would take the message and internalize it, that it would transform and bless each of our homes. In Jesus' name, amen, Father. In Two questions in regards to myths. I kind of touched on this already in a previous sermon. But let's begin by looking at two myths regarding conflict in marriage. So these are true or false questions. So I would like for you to venture and say what you think is true or false. Here's the first statement. Good marriages experience no conflict. False. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like how you answer that one. The second question is also a true or false statement, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. All conflict is bad or sinful. It's false. So these are two false answers that we all got right, yet Satan can utilize conflict in our marriages to make us doubt our marriage. Make us think that maybe I shouldn't have gotten into this with this person, and my marriage must be the most horrible marriage in the world because there's conflict. But we've just identify that those are two false myths. And yet Satan is most successful in using myths to convince us and begin to weaken that covenant aspect in our marriages. Dr. Bakioki in his book, page 92, says, When a married couple tells me that they have never had an argument or conflict during their 30 or 40 years of marriage, and I have had couples tell me that. that uh, Dr. Bakioki says that when a couple says that they've never had an argument or conflict in 40, 30 years, I assume that one or two things must be true of them. One, they are not telling the truth. Or two, their relationship must be rather superficial and boring. You can't avoid conflict by not being yourself, not being truthful about what you like or what you don't like. But all marriages experience conflict. Two verses that we're going to be comparing right now, Zechariah 8.19 and John 8.40. Zechariah 8.19 and John 8.40 brings to light something that we like, we think we like, until we begin to experience the outcomes of this element. In Zechariah 8.19, we are told, Therefore, love truth and peace. Therefore, love truth and peace. So we think that 
that verse is saying is that if I embrace truth, peace will follow. In John 8.40, Jesus tells his antagonist, his enemies, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Truth is good, but truth brings conflict. Truth brings conflict. In Zechariah, we are told to love the truth and peace because the peace that truth brings is a steady, unswerving, untouchable kind of a peace. But we can't try to keep peace in the house through many other means, manipulations, using power, whatever. But that peace is transient and actually quite fragile. Jesus used the truth. He was the, the way, the life, and the truth. But what did that produce in his context? People wanted to kill him. Truth sets us free, says Jesus. But it was truth like nothing else that brought conflict into Jesus' life. And if there's something that's going to bring conflict into our marriages, is the truth too. Because the reason people wanted to kill him is because people were governed by sin and the principles of sins and the distortions that sins bring. You and I know, if we're married, that in the midst of a conflict, you have two people that are absolutely 100% right. But they're both in disagreement with each other. I am 100% right. No, you're wrong. I am 100% right. Neither one of them have the truth. And that is something that brings about this chasm, this friction between the couples. Because both are convinced they have the truth. The only person that has the truth is who? Jesus Christ. And that's why inviting Christ into the marriage helps us adjust the truth. Not about my spouse, but the truth about myself. Before I can resolve the conflict with the truth in someone else, I need to embrace and allow the truth from Christ to bring conflict and warfare and a resolution, a death to self. The truth brings peace. So we're going to look at seven sources of conflict. There's personality differences, intellectual differences, spiritual differences, vocational tensions, role conflicts, family crises, and the use of money. These are the seven conflicts that Dr. Bakioki, in his experience and in his studies, has identified. We're going to go briefly through them because we actually want to spend time in the ways to resolve conflict. Personality differences. It comes as something of a shock, says Dr. Bakioki, to most young couples to discover that marriages are not consummated. You don't consummate a marriage. Rather, you work at a marriage, you hammer out a marriage, you pray through a marriage, you suffer through a marriage. Some marriages fail because couples are psychologically incompatible and will not adjust to the demands of living together in intimate marital relationships. The conflicts don't disappear and dissolve on their own. He takes these words like work, hammer, pray, suffer. That is what allows conflicts to be resolved within a marriage. And they all require time. All of these things require time, which the, the more we see our society, that's the one thing we don't want to give. We want to give less and less and less of. Um, we don't have time for thinking. We don't have time for conversations. When I first got married, I would tell my wife, honey, just get to the point. What is it that you want to tell me? Because I have nursing school. I have this and I have that. And I didn't realize that if I want to understand my wife, I can't just put her on fast forward. You know, I still fight myself because I showed you guys one time. I was trying to show you the, the Bible app. And when I try to show you the audio of it, you heard that. That's how I listen to it. <laughs> because I don't have that much time in the mornings. I try to do my devotions before the girls wake up. But I catch myself thinking, are you actually listening or are you just putting that and letting your brain go off into la-la land? Time is just the unavoidable, non-negotiable that is needed for conflict resolution. And our society wants to rob us of that time with families. That's why Sabbath will become a greater and greater commodity of joy and peace and blessing if we choose to honor the Sabbath. Because Sabbath will recalibrate our relationship with time. You will find that we make time for what we want. And what our society is unwilling to accept is that, oh, I don't have time for this, I don't have time for that. Look at the stadiums, look at the restaurants, and look at the bars. Do people have time? 
We have time. It's just that we don't have time for God. We don't want to invest time in relationships. We want to have relationships like sitcoms where everything is resolved in 30 minutes. Do most problems solve in 30 minutes? Actually, you can make problems in 30 minutes, but it may take you years to resolve those things. So personality differences require time. Intellectual differences. I had not become aware of this until I was in Columbus, Ohio, and I had invited Dr. Jorge and Nubia Myers to do a marriage seminar at the church plant that I was working at. And I brought to their attention a couple that came to me with questions. And this is what they shared with me. They themselves were counseling a young lady who was about to finish law school and she was going to marry a mechanic. Both were nice, committed to the church, but she was not sure how the future would play out. How will he handle you being invited to social events where other lawyers, judges, politicians, business owners attend? Dr. Myers asked this young lady. Will he feel he fits in? How would you feel if he asked you not to attend those places because he feels out of place or that your professional world does not fit him? This doesn't mean that these individuals shouldn't marry, but they need to ask what is really important to each of them. I hope we know that a college degree, no matter how high you go, doesn't give you wisdom. It just gives you information. You can have a mechanic that is very wise about life while you can have an educated lawyer who is a complete fool. Education doesn't give wisdom, only God gives wisdom. The spouse with a really high level of education may not possess a high level of spiritual convictions or resolve, while the spouse with quote-unquote little education holds strongly to the biblical principles in daily life decisions. And that's really what makes a marriage successful. They do need to ask these questions, but they need to ask these questions in the context of the gospel. And yes, professions may make a difference. And to me, this was significant because at that time, I was considering pursuing a relationship with a young lady who was finishing her science and she was going to go into master's in chemistry or stuff like that. And I was a college dropout, still illegal immigrant. And so I was like, you know, maybe it's not the best fit right now until later. Those are things that need to be discussed by marriage couples because intellectual differences or perceived intellectual differences can make a difference. A truly intelligent spouse will not look down on his or her spouse simply because they lack formal education. Because if the spouse possesses wisdom in financial choices, choices with far-reaching consequences, or spiritual decisions with consequences affecting eternal destiny, they have a good spouse. Whereas you can have a college-educated spouse that could care less about the Lord and they care more about their career and going up in the corporate ladder And they'll compromise Sabbath, they'll compromise tithing, and all these other things. So these are real elements of conflict that need to be considered. Of course, this is in the context of before getting married. The third source of conflict that Dr. Bakyoki mentions is spiritual differences. And this is not denominational differences. These are spiritual differences. This is why time is necessary to evaluate your companion. You can have in the same church... In this context, it would be Seventh-day Adventist Church. You can have a very spiritual individual that is involved in church, leads out, is, is spiritually engaged, and a possible companion who is only interested in secular pursuits, can't wait for Sabbath to be over, for the sun to go down, and to go back into normal life. And you can have those two individuals in the church, and though they may have the same denomination, are they equally in, mer- in spiritual tenor? And the Bible says that can two individuals that are unequally yoked have harmony? These individuals are setting themselves up for a marriage full of conflict. So we have to evaluate our own selves. It's not about, you know, well, I need to find someone that is very consecrated. But ask myself, how am I doing spiritually? What is my level of commitment of spirituality? What about those of us that are married and find ourselves with a spouse that may have backslidden or a spouse that has not shown any interest in spiritual things? So Dr. Bakyoki says that it's counterintuitive for a marriage in which one spouse is committed spiritually and the other is not, how to bring about these changes. This is what Dr. Bakyoki says. It will not help for the wife to say to her husband, I fervently hope and pray that you will become the kind of spiritual leader God is expecting you to be. 
That may sound spiritual, but it will only serve to make the husband feel inadequate at that moment. And when men feel shame, we go into our cave. We may even become resistant and rebellious when we are being told we are not measuring up to the spiritual leader that we ought to be. Judgmental criticism, even when expressed with a pious-sounding rhetoric, antagonizes and alienates. Are you guys following this? So it may seem good to tell the husband or the wife, I wish you prayed more, I wish you were reading the Bible, but that will always actually backfire on us. Instead of telling him what he needs to do, offer opportunities for him or her to choose to join in, but not to lead out. Don't tell him, pray for the food like a good spiritual leader man should. Rather, would you like to join us for blessing for the food? And you pray, not him or her. You fill that role and invite him or her to join you until they have been spiritually warmed by the Spirit of God. Don't tell him or her, read the Bible to your kids like a good godly father should. Instead, would you like to join and listen to a short Bible reading with the kids? and you or the kids lead out. And you need to be realistic and fully aware that your husband or your wife may say no. And you need to be okay with that. And you need to prayerfully, kindly continue to invite, continue to invite. 1 Corinthians 7.14 is a wonderful passage of encouragement for those of us that may find ourselves in a marriage that I am committed, but my wife or my husband is not. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. God can use your influence to awaken in that person a desire for spiritual things, but it's not going to happen by us telling them what they need to be, but by us inviting them to connect to the one that can transform their hearts and make them the kind of spiritual leader who we would like them to be. I had never really paid much attention to all the other vocational factors, but there's vocational tensions. And by vocational tensions is jobs. Losing a job for a man is a big burden of cultural and societal expectations. A man is supposed to provide for his family. But those things have changed for the most part. My youth leader, when he graduated from high school, he got married to his high school sweetheart. And with a high school job, he was able to find a job that bought him a house, nice-sized house, provided for his family. That was with a high school education. This is back in the 50s. His wife stayed home. His wife stayed home to raise the kids. So it was just a one-income home from someone with a high school degree, and they lived out in the suburbs. They put a pool in their house, their kids went to college, and he had a high school degree. Is that a possibility today? You could, but not likely. You would have to have some good business savviness to do that. But high school, as far as being able to land a job that would allow your spouse to stay home, and you'll be able to provide a home in a safe environment that is not drug-infested or things like that, it's difficult. That's the reality. And when Bob, my youth leader, was telling me this, he was lamenting my generation. He felt bad for me and the upcoming generation because he's like, my daughters, they ended up with the bachelors, and they ended up with the really, really nice jobs. But the way the world is moving, even sometimes bachelor degrees are not even worth much anymore. It's gone to the point where... Many of my friends have made a decision to go to vocational schools, and they're doing way better <laughs> than some of them, my friends with other academic degrees. Medical degrees, I think, are universally stable, but all the other ones, extremely fragile in the economy that we're in. But everybody will need their cars getting fixed. Everybody will need repair work, et cetera, or homes being built. So most of my friends that went into plumbing, welding, electricity, they have secure jobs, and they're getting paid quite well. But that's not high school either. This requires further training. The point is this, whether with or without education, financial is the goal of getting an education. Deuteronomy 8, we're not going to read all of these verses for the sake of time, but I'm going to give you Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 to 4, 6 through 9, and 11 through 19. You can read the whole chapter just to make it easy, but for the sake of the focus, couples that get caught up with my career makes more money, or my job makes more money, or I'm the better breadwinner. We already talked about this in the Law of the Marriage Covenant, where the husband that makes money, in the majority of the cases, cannot use that as leverage to force his wife to be submissive to everything he wants to do because he's the one that brings home the bread, the money. 
when both couples work, which is that a dynamic that is more common nowadays, but when both couples come and they work, Satan can use that as a source of conflict if the couples allow it. And how do couples allow a vocational salaries to enter and become conflict in a marriage? By forgetting what Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 19 tell us. I'm just going to read verse 17 as the punchline of all the verses. Deuteronomy 8, 17 says, Then you say in your heart, this is God warning us to forget to, when we go into the promised land that we settle ourselves and we have homes and cattle and things like that, verse 17 says, Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. That's Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. All that we have, the home, the car, and anything else inside of it, who has provided that for us? Who gives us the strength to acquire the wealth that we get? And you can forget that, and Satan wants couples to forget that. They look at their bank account, they look at their paycheck stubs, and they'll let their eyes stray from the source of all these blessings and begin to look at who makes more and who really has the, the last say. And the law of gold, not the golden rule, but the law of gold steps into the marriage. And you guys know that law very well. The one who has the gold makes the law, makes the rules. That's not a Christian marriage. When we degrade our marriages to trying to settle arguments by the one who makes them more money, we by default will forget. We'll forget who gives it to us. So one last passage, 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 11. We are very familiar with verse 10, but beginning in verse 9 it says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction for the love of money. You've heard this in many sermons. Is money the problem? What is the problem? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things, pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. This is not a message exclusively or directly for wealthy people, because poor people can crave money just as much as rich people can. Greediness and covetousness can affect all social classes. Christian marriages that want to avoid conflict will keep their eyes focused on the provider, which is their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Role conflicts, Elder Royce Naiman, and Lois Naiman spoke about this already. Who will change the diapers? Who will cook? Who will mop? Those things primarily come from homes, and you have to be aware what those expectations are. Family crises, those are the sources of conflict. Parents, the in-laws getting divorced, someone passing away, some chronic illness, etc., and as we've alluded with the vocational, which is related to the use of money. So we looked at the sources of conflict. We want to spend time this morning looking at biblical principles related to how to attenuate and how to relate to these conflicts. And the first one is a recap of one that we have already anchored. And this, choose to be committed to preserving your marriage covenant. Choosing to be committed to preserving your marriage covenant. And the only ways to go about that is that we must take God as our partner into our marriage. We must begin and close each day praying together, renewing our commitment. We must ask God daily for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to be truthful, kind, patient, and understanding. That requires commitment. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit, not you. Which means that you cannot produce these on your own. Which means that we already know where Satan is going to try to get you every single time. If Satan can get you careless about your prayer time and your time with the Lord and His Word, he knows he has your marriage. Because we already memorized this in our fast class on, on Tuesdays. John 15, 5, can we say it out loud? I am divine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, so can I produce any one of these fruits? No. It is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the deacon, not the fruit of elders, not the fruit of the baptized. 
This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me. And we all very, we talked about this already. If you plant apple, an apple tree, if you plant the seed of an apple tree, when will you be eating apples? Next week? Yeah, and you may have to spank it a bit, right? Like we learned from a children's story some time back. Or run over it with a car. Fruit takes time. But when you get married, you are now, in a way, starting a new garden with new trees. And trees are unique in that if I plant tomatoes, I will have tomatoes probably in a couple of months. If I plant green beans, I may have green beans in a few months. But if I plant an apple tree or a pear tree, it's going to take a while. So when I get married, now I need to have fruits as a husband. Now I need to have these fruits manifesting as a wife. And that will happen right after the honeymoon, right? And so we have to give our spouse time. And I know that it is hard when you are the committed one and your spouse seems to be lagging behind. And you would love to be right up to where you're at right now. But we have to believe that though the seed has been going and we don't may see nothing above ground, we have to by faith believe that God is working on that seed. We have to pray for that seed, that it will bear fruits. And like we said earlier, the husband sanctify the wife or the wife sanctify the husband. Be honest and fair in handling conflicts. This is number two. Number one is being committed. Number two is being honest and fair when handling conflicts. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each other speak truth. And we already looked at Zechariah 8.19, Therefore, love truth and peace. We all become liars when we are arguing. We all become liars when we argue and want to win the argument. We will say things that are not completely true in order to win the argument. The goal of the conflict should not be to find fault or reasons to blame. Marriage is not a competitive sport, but a cooperative endeavor. For individuals that are very competitive and love to win, they're going to have a hard time in their marriages. For individuals that are used to being head of the class, getting all A's and outwitting and outsmarting other people and showing off their GPA, they'll probably flunk marriage because they'll want to win arguments. They'll want to prove that they're right. They want to prove that their methods are the best methods to live life or make decisions in the marriage. And that's not marriage. God did not give you a marriage partner to show off how smart you are. God gave you a marriage partner because that person has something you don't. And you need that person's perspective to make better decisions about life than you could on your own. So humility is a high degree of a high, a, a valuable commodity in marriage. Mark 3.25, Michelle read the verse for us. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And a competitive spirit as to who will be right and who will win this argument will certainly make my family fail. The New Living Translation reads Mark 25 this way. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. Trying to win arguments through untruths is what creates resentments, estrangements, and bitterness, weakening the marriage commitment. When the concern of spouses is for each other to win the argument, ultimately, who loses? Both. Both. Even if you win, you still lose. You'll be sleeping in the couch. Number three, keep your anger under control. This is what begins to ferment when we're in a conflict. Like we said, competitiveness, but now this emotion, this very strong emotion, keep your anger under control. Psalms 4.4 gets quoted in the New Testament. Many people think that Paul came up with this verse, but actually he's quoting Psalms chapter 4, verse 4. It says, be angry and do not sin. Does the Bible tell us to not be angry? No. Is being angry perfectly good for a Christian? Yeah, we should get angry because there are things that should make us angry. But how we manage that anger is really the, the difference. I should be learning the habit of praying in my anger. That is something that we learn. First of all, we learn that we can pray when we're angry. We don't say, oh, Lord, I'm too angry to talk to you right now. No, that's the time to talk to the Lord when you're angry. I'll talk to you, Lord, after I cool off. No, you will never cool off. By the time you cool off, you will have run over a whole bunch of people in, in your pathway. 
we need to learn. This is not something that comes natural. This is not something that is innate and that you feel butterflies fluttering inside of you when you're angry. It is a conscious choice of faith against our feelings. If we've ever wondered what it means that faith are not feelings, you'll know it when you're angry. Because you'll discover that even if you're angry, you can still pray to God and be honest with Him. The idea is not to tell God, I'm not angry, I'm just fine, while you're gritting your teeth and you're beat red and you're fuming. It's praying to God and telling Him exactly why you are angry. We have to learn to be honest to God in our prayers. Many of us try to be fake with God in our prayers and end up being fake with our spouses in our conversations. If I am able to be truthful to God in my prayers, God will resolve whatever conflict I have so that I can solve the conflict between me and my spouse without the anger damaging it. I must develop and learn the practice of praying in my anger, through my anger, and praying until my anger has cooled off. In, through, and until. Sinful anger is when the emotion is expressed in outbursts of temper, profane or insulting language, or physical violence. That is sinning. And the Christian, though we are allowed to be angry, God can help us channel the anger in a different route, and that route needs to be into developing the habit of prayer. Angry words, listen carefully, this is from Pastor Bakioki's book, Dr. Bakioki's book, page 111, that says, Angry words, once spoken even unintentionally, are deadly weapons that can wound and crush our mates permanently. A man who in a moment of anger tells his wife, let's face it, I do not feel like loving you anymore. It will inflict upon her a permanent wound. So to cut a remark such as, no wonder you act so irresponsibly. Your father died in a mental hospital. Your mate may later say, I forgive you. But deep inside, the hurt caused by those words may never be truly healed. It's not worth it. The wife of the husband that married us, Carmen, she told Aline many years ago, while Aline was still single, that it is better for us to have scars in our tongues than to inflict scars in the hearts of the people we love. It's better to have scars in our tongues than in the people that we love in their hearts, meaning bite our tongues. Bite our tongues. Jesus warns us that in the day of judgment, many husbands, many wives will lose eternal life because of what he said in Matthew 12, 37. Matthew 12, 37, Jesus says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Anger can cause us to do things that are irreversible. We know that from Cain. When Cain became angry, the first time that emotion is mentioned in the Bible. The first one is shame. The second one is anger. Some other ways to handle conflict is choose an appropriate time to discuss a problem. Ecclesiastes 3, 7 through 8, we know that very well. The secular world made a song out of it. There's a time to keep silence, and there's a time to speak. Which means that when you're angry, you kind of usually want to talk now, because I'm fuming, I want to solve this now. Well, that may not be the best time. Dr. Bakioki suggests there are five different times where we should not be trying to handle conflict. These are not the best time to try to solve conflict. Actually, it may make it worse. Just before a meal, just before a meal is not the time to bring up stuff that will make us fight, but that has the potential to make us argue. Just before going to bed, because that will keep you up till three in the morning. Just before having intimacy, because you will need that experience to kind of be the, the glue before the conflict. Just before going to work, because you'll be late and that will be double the conflict. Or during an unrelated family crisis, a health crisis, financial, employment, etc. We should wait for the proper time. And right before a meal, there's much science that has been discovered within the last couple of decades about the importance of families eating together. How many of you guys knew that already? You guys have probably heard that, that the family that eats together regularly, their children are less likely to have truancy issues, drug issues, promiscuous issues. By the simple fact of eating together, guess who doesn't want the family to eat together in peace? So let us not cooperate with the enemy by bringing up conflict issues right before a meal. You may be stewing, but remember what the Bible says? The Lord tells us, don't take revenge, but turn it over to him. And let him open the time, provide the time for speaking. The best time to discuss is when both partners are well rested. 
I remember Loris Neiman giving something similar at the Oakwood Church. Someone asked her, you know, the Bible says that do not let the sun go down in your anger. Well, many people misapply that by thinking that we're not going to go to sleep until this thing is resolved and it's 4 a.m. And what happens when you start getting sleepy and groggy? How rational, (laughs) how good are you at measuring your words, right? It could actually make things worse. What Loris Neiman corrected by that misunderstanding is don't sleep deprive yourself thinking that that's what God wants you to do, but rather acknowledge the problem and select a time and a day that you will commit to talking about this problem, then pray together and go to sleep. Because an unrested mind becomes, I mean, how easily can we get hot under the collar when you're underslept, right? And society, again, keeps us up way into the night, way later. One more thing, one more thing, one more thing. Make sure that you are both rested before you try to discuss of anything sensitive that could potentially bring uh, fights or misunderstandings. As much as it is possible, always have joint prayer before the subject is discussed, claiming God's promises, meaning the Bible should be open, that His presence will be with and in the midst of the two as you gather together in His name. This is one of the number one ways to mitigate or prepare to have these kind of discussions. Number five, what Dr. Nbakioki recommends, is also stick to the issue at hand. When God came to Cain, to talk to him about his heart problem. Why is your face downcast? Cain deflected. Cain changed the subject. Am I my brother's keeper? And you'll be tempted that when your wife or your husband has a good point, you'll bring up something else completely unrelated to the issue. Stick to the issue at hand. The woman at the well said the same thing to Jesus when Jesus says, bring your husband. And she said, I have no husband. Actually, she did that even before that when Jesus tells her that he has water to drink and She says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Where should we worship? In this mountain or in Samaria? Deflecting and redirecting somewhere else. My wife and I have stayed up till two in the morning at times because I did not want to lose the argument. And just when my wife would show kindly and lovingly my wrong, I would switch to somewhere else where I was right. And it didn't go well because I was trying to win the argument not trying to solve the conflict. We can easily deceive ourselves into thinking, no, I'm right, and I have to prove I'm right. Satan will seduce us very successfully each time. The goal is not to prove that you're right. The goal is to heal the marriage. The goal is to protect the promise you made to that person, that you will love them and cherish them. So sticks to the issue at hand. Number six, listen carefully and speak tactfully. Listen carefully. It's interesting that in our developmental stages, we listen as a skill after we learn to speak. We learn to speak by just repetition. So we learn how to say words, but it's much later in life that we actually learn to listen to those words. (laughs) We see that as children grow up. We tell Gianna or Anaya, Anaya, please, can you pick those socks that you took off from your feet? Yeah. And in the 20 steps between her and the socks, there's a ball, bright and red, that will cause her to forget completely about the socks. So she'll be playing with the ball, and I'll have to remind her again, Honey, are you listening to Daddy? Pick up the socks. Pick up the socks. I'll tell it to you in Spanish if you want to. And then 10 steps in, there's Legos. (laughs) She forget about the Legos. Listening, we're not as good as we may think we are. And listening is something we learn. You learn to speak because your parents spoke to you, but you will learn to listen when you care for that person and you actually will want to pay attention to what that person is saying. Because a lot of the times that what we argue about is stuff that we have heard wrong. James 1.19 tells us, but you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And our sinful nature completely reverses that. We are quick to think we heard whatever was said, and then we are quick to get angry and quick to speak and slow to listen. The fruits of the Spirit, one of them, one of the components of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. And if I'm going to solve this without exacerbating the situation, I must ask the person, is this what you said? This is what I heard you saying. Past couple of years, just doing that simple thing has prevented my wife and I from heading into Satan's traps so easily. And Satan will always try to lay these traps on Friday night, right before Sabbath, or Sabbath morning, right before we come to church. 
is when most of these silly misunderstandings over pancakes and dresses and ties would happen. And now it's like, honey, is this what you said? No, not at all. I'm glad. What did you say? <laughs> Let me actually pay attention to you. Listening is a skill that we must develop. And also uh, the speaking, the responding, Proverbs 25.11 says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Luke 6.45, Jesus actually gives us a preventative measure for preventing arguments. Jesus in Luke 6.45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And a lot of times, I would find myself, especially when I was at seminary, trying to carry the academic weight and relating to church issues, church problems. Uh, I would come home, not focusing on the Lord, but focusing on the problems. And when problems would arise at home, because there was problems in my heart already, guess what came out of my mouth? That's why in Psalms 19.14, we are told, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. It's not enough the words. Words, before they become words, they were first meditations. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So guess what we might want to do right before we head into an argument? What should we put in abundance inside of our hearts? Good words. And what are the best words that any person can find in planet Earth? God's Word. Reading large portions of the Psalms, reading large portions of things related to the issue, related to the confession, Psalms 51, Psalms 32, Psalms 91, Psalms 103. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. We read this past week in the fast class. When there's an abundance of God's word inside of me, the Spirit will have a lot of good things to bring out when Satan wants to provoke. Number seven, the last one, being willing to forgive and forget. In every marriage, there are times when conflicts become uncontrolled and irrational. Because fatigue, pride, selfishness, or anxiety, the ugly side of our nature breaks out in angry outbursts cutting remarks, abusive language, or irrational accusations. Such behavior awakens the equally ugly side of our mates, who may retaliate similarly with angry and abusive language. And this can happen to any marriage. So forgiveness is not a nice option. Forgiveness is a necessity, a vital essential necessity that every marriage will use sooner or later. We need to understand what forgiveness is not. To forgive is not to ignore a wrong. To forgive is not to explain away sinful behavior. To forgive is not to condone or endorse dysfunctional attitudes, actions, and words. In fact, the fact that I have to forgive something indicates that something evil has taken place and it must be addressed as evil. I appreciate it that my wife has held me accountable when I have spoken words and I said I'm sorry, but then we have a conversation. Not because my wife is unwilling to forgive, but because those words hurt. And would you want someone to hurt you again? I wouldn't, and my wife wouldn't. So we would sit back and analyze what led to this misunderstanding. Why did I react this way? What am I struggling with? What am I facing? And it's been reciprocal. But when we forgive, it doesn't mean we see, okay, let's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let's, let's move on. Talk about what happened. Let it become a learning experience so that by the grace of God, it is not repeated. Forgiveness, like listening, is something we must learn. People that tell me after something major has happened in their lives, someone has done them a great wrong, and they say simply, oh, I forgave them already. In a flippant, haphazard way, I question those forgiveness. Sometimes we say it because it's the pious thing to say. Sometimes we say it because, oh, God tells me that I have to forgive, so I'll forgive. And it harms us. It harms me to tell myself that I've forgiven someone when I actually haven't. And it will hurt the marriage if you think you've forgiven your spouse, but you really haven't. And one of the best symptoms, self-evidence, that I have yet to forgive my spouse over something, you know what it is? I bring it up again and again and again and again. That shows that it's still there. 
and that I have not fully let it go and surrender to the Lord. And we all struggle with that. Forgiveness is something that is learned, and yet, listen carefully, this is the last point, this is where we will close this morning. It is not that you learn how to forgive better. That's not how you and I relate to forgiveness. It's not like listening. Listening, you practice by doing it more, but not with forgiveness. No one learns to forgive by forgiving more frequently. We learn to forgive in the same way we learn how to love. 1 John 4.19 is the key. 1 John 4.19 says, We love God, we love Him because He first loved us. Where do I go to learn how to love? God. Because He didn't learn it from me. (laughs) I didn't learn it on my own. If I want to learn what love truly is, I must behold God. Where has God most fully and beautifully revealed His love to the human race and the entire universe? At the cross. If I'm going to learn how to forgive, I must go to God who is the ultimate forgiver. And I learn how to love from how He loves me. I must learn how to forgive by how He has forgiven me. Does that make sense? So we don't learn how to forgive by forgiving more. We learn how to forgive by coming closer to the cross. Psalms 103 tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions for us. How many of you guys praise God that that's how God forgives? Most fully, completely. We have to learn that. It is not natural to us. We need to accept that. Some of us may struggle more with it because of the kind of homes we've grown up in. We may have learned to be resentful and hold grudges for a long time from our parents. That can be passed on genetically. It's not just a behavioral thing that we learn to imitate. It gets passed into our genetics as well. But praise God, the grace of God is stronger than our genes or our bad habits. Amen? Both inherited and cultivated tendencies can both be overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Colossians 3.13 says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. In the same sense that we learn how to love by continually referencing how God loved us, we must also learn how to forgive in the same way. At the cross, God revealed the height and depth and width of His everlasting love for us by forgiving us. At the cross and only at the cross, does forgiveness becomes fair and just. At the core of our struggle with forgiveness is this ingrained developmental practice of parents trying to teach our children of what it's fair. If I give one scoop of ice cream to one daughter, I must give how many scoops of ice cream to the other? One, because if you give one ounce more to the other, (laughs) not one more drop of juice for Johnny, otherwise call on you, mom. And that's not fair. That's not fair. And so we grow up with this tit for tat. Light has to be just. Light has to be fair. And then we, we grow up and we realize it, it has nothing to do with that. Well, forgiveness is not fair either. Yet God found a way. And in the way God found a way to justify us without condemning us it's at the cross romans 3:26 tells us that he might be just and the justifier of the one who comes to him by faith in jesus we must surrender our desire for our marriage to be fair and just otherwise we will be completely disappointed and discouraged in our marriage but it's not by ignoring the evils or the wrongs that are done to us, but by choosing to forgive them. By not saying, Lord, it's not fair. The cross was not fair. But at the cross, we find justice and righteousness, forgiveness and love. God pouring the entire wrath upon my sins, upon the innocent victim, so that his innocence can become mine. That's love. So it may not be fair to forgive your husband or your wife, But at the cross, we find the reasons why. We love him because he first loved us. And I forgive you because Jesus has forgiven me. A debt that I could never pay back. And he still forgives me. He still forgives me. Praise God. This is the core 
of how we solve the conflict in our lives. By clinging to Christ and every day coming nearer and nearer to his cross. Father, forgive us if this morning we have come holding grudges with unforgiveness. Forgive us, Father, if we have harbored a competitive, prideful heart in our homes. Forgive us, Father, if we have been more obsessed with being right than with being kind. Forgive us, Father, if we have been impatient with our spouses, especially if they're limping, especially if they're not as spiritual as we think they ought to be. Forgive us, Lord, for the impatience of not allowing you to work in our spouse's life to bring forth the fruits we would love to see there. Father, I pray in a special way for our marriages if there's someone here this morning with a spouse that is far from you right now. Whether it's a wife or a husband that right now is resisting your spirit. Father, more than I command, I want to present your word as a promise that the presence of these husbands or these wives in that home Fulfill what your word says, Lord, that the husband can sanctify the wife and the wife can sanctify the husband. That the prayerful influences, the fruits of the Spirit being made benefit and these husbands and wives can reach their hearts and draw these people closer to you for their salvation. We pray for those husbands that are far away from you this morning. We pray for those wives that are far away from you this morning. We pray for ourselves, Lord. We pray for our hearts. Teach us how to relate to our anger. Forgive us, Lord, that we are poor listeners. Give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear your word. And in learning to hear you, we may be able to learn to listen to our husbands, to our wives. Father, thank you that these are not difficult things. It just requires, Father, a crucifixion of self, a dying to self. I pray for my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters. That these will not have just been seven cute points to write somewhere and close the books and move on. Remind us of this by your Spirit, Lord, when the right moment comes. Remind us of these principles, Father, that we can live out our covenant marriage with our spouses in a way that honors you and creates, Father, the most favorable environments in our home for them to become little bits of heaven here on earth. What may seem impossible to you, Lord, is a possibility to you. And I do claim, Father, this promise as we close this morning's worship. The things that are impossible with men become a reality a possibility with God. All things are possible with you, Lord. We praise you for being a God bigger than our problems, bigger than our conflicts, bigger than our sins. We praise you for your son, Jesus, and the righteousness and forgiveness you have given us through him. We praise you for your love. Teach us to love how you love. In Jesus' name, amen, Father. You have been listening to Ariel Roldan, pastor of Cadillac and Lake City Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Cadillac Church at 801 East Division Street in Cadillac, Michigan, and their church service begins at 11 a.m. Or visit the Lake City Church located at 5970 West Sanborn Road in Lake City, Michigan, and their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.